Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, the podcast about board gamers and the insane fun we have at the table together. This is Chris. Hey, this is Anthony. And this is episode 273, our friends' favorite games with Tony Galati. We'd like to thank all our Patreon backers for helping us bring you a brand new episode, especially our new Patreon backer, Peter O'Reilly. Peter, my friend, you rock. All right, Anthony, we're back with a brand new episode, and we are talking once again to one of our favorite friends in the industry, Tony from CGE, who will be talking about his original creation and some other games that are coming up. Yeah, it's always a blast. And it's funny, because talking to Tony, which you guys will hear later, he's been at conventions in the industry now for, you know, an official capacity for like five years, which is about how long we've been going to conventions. So I feel like I've always seen Tony. Tony's always there. <laughs> Even though before we were there, he wasn't also not there. So it's kind of cool to hear his backstory and how we got into gaming and kind of how he transitioned from gaming into professional gaming, which is always a really fun conversation. So definitely don't miss that. It's a good one. Anthony, we got a lot of other stuff here. We have so much going on. What's going on with our listeners? What's our question of the week? Question of the week this week, inspired on Reddit, somebody was complaining about a rule book, and I was like, hey, what is the worst rule book you've ever read, but also <laughs> the best one? So I wanted to hear everybody's worst and their best. Some people had a lot of one and couldn't think of another, and some people were vice versa. It's a, This is always fun. So <laughs> uh, Matthew starts it off. He mentions Dominant Species as his favorite rule book. Uh, Zach followed up with that. I think two other people also said dominant species. I've never read the dominant species rule book. So uh-huh. I don't know. I don't know what's in there, but apparently it's amazing. Have you read it? <laughs> I have read it and it is amazing. Okay, so, okay good. <laughs> I, I mean, if you're talking about rule book via complexity, I mean, I think that there's, there's no better rule book. Because honestly, if you look at the game, if you watch pictures or if you didn't watch a playthrough, you're like, it's cones and cubes. How how is this a game? And the rule book actually takes you through that. So it's it's a fantastic rule book. That's great. Yeah. I mean, GMT has their like 5.2.1, you know, approach to rules. And it works really well because it makes it easy to reference things and organize the things in a way that makes sense to, I think, a large percentage of people. Sure. Uh, but I also think Chad Jensen, um, rest in peace, he yes. had a very particular way of organizing and presenting information, not just in Dominant Species, in all of his games, that was uh, particularly conducive to learning those games. So I think that's why it comes up a lot. Yeah, and I think especially that when they reprint, and they have reprinted, I don't know, we're up to 5th edition here on um, Dominant Species, they always revise the rulebook. So... Obviously, that seems a little daunting, but they actually make it better. They streamline the rules. They streamline the rule book. GMT does a great job. And again, via the complexity, I mean, if you haven't played any of their games just because they seem a little too complex, honestly, the vast majority of complexity when it comes to games is learning and teaching. GMT does a great job. And Absolutely. Yeah. So moving on from GMT, which again, awesome stuff. Um, Scott has one of my favorite comments for this. He says, the best is difficult to choose. So many great rule books. But if I have to pick one, it would be Pax Pamir 2nd Edition, mainly because of what I'm going to write next. The worst is any rule book for any game from Sierra Madre games, such as any of the rest of the Pax series. Uh, 
I agree. The Sierra Madre rule books are just so bad. <laughs> They're just so yeah. bad. Um, several other people chimed in on this. John mentioned Greenland. Somebody else mentioned Neanderthal. Dead Squirrel mentioned Bios Genesis. These are all Sierra Madre games. And these are among some of the heavier games listed on BGG. And I've always wondered, is the game actually that heavy or is the rule book that bad? And I don't know because I don't know that I've ever successfully gotten through one of those rule books. I don't think I've actually taught myself one of these games yet. I own like three of them too. I've other people have taught them to me. I've worked my way through them online, but whew, they are dense. They're like 50, 60 pages. There's all these footnotes. It's, it's a whole bunch of nonsense. Yeah. I guess uh, from my side, if I'm looking at the best rule book, that probably has to be from Lisboa. Mm. Lisboa Vitalisert is once again another very heavy game and again an, a big rule book but it's laid out so well and it follows how you would play the game so it's not like one of these situations where like oh this is a typical first action or this is what you do at the beginning of the game and then oh no now I have to go to page 12 now page 12 references page 18 the rule book makes sense. It follows through. It shows you in illustrations where everything goes, how everything interacts. It gives you a list of everything. And even with Lisboa, everyone has their individual books that once again is a fantastic, not just a player aid, but actually a little bit of a rule book go through as the game goes on. The worst rule book <laughs> would is, is it's really hard to kind of narrow down to any one particular game, but I would have to say it's the Roar a story of coal trade. God, yes. So um, and this was capstone games where they were just bringing rule books over whole piece and the translations were bad and it was never examined to the point where after reading the rule book, I went online and I found somebody who did a, a playthrough of the game and it was a great playthrough and he worked very hard. And at the end he said, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't know if I played the game correctly. I read through the rule book three or four times. <laughs> I don't know if, if, if this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And I was like, all right, I'm out. <laughs> and, and I just, <laughs> I love Capstone games. I love all their games. I love this game in theory, but in practice, I just, I, I just can't get through the rule book. It makes you wonder because the Ruhr is on Board Game Arena. Yes. Yes, I saw it. it. <laughs> right like is this game does this right does this work properly i don't know because who knows anybody can read these rules i don't know but you know it might be the one place you can actually play the board game effectively because the rulebook is not helping you actually it's working against you through the whole time so yeah yeah i i would agree on lisboa really any of italicerdis games he writes his own rules which is amazing and uh i would say too like paul grogan frequently of gaming rules frequently does proofreading he also does the official rules videos for all of lacerda games he's really good if you see his name on anybody's rule book it's probably a good rule book so gonna give credit there for me the worst rule book i've ever read is myth this was i mean it's just it was nonsense it was impossible to learn the game from the rule book to the point where they as part of their second Kickstarter, you could just buy a new rule book that they'd rewritten and hired someone else to <laughs> read and rewrite. It was it was a sandbox of a game anyways, but the rule book was just like, here's a random example, which doesn't actually teach you any rules. It just shows you something that could happen in this specific situation. Sure. I, it was not helpful at all. Uh, my favorite rule book is Legends of Andor, and that's because it's 
it's like a three page rule book. And it's not even really a rule book because the game kind of teaches you through immersive, you know, the game emerges as you play. The rules are on the cards or in the book it kind of flows through and you can start playing within like five minutes, which is always really fun for me when I don't have to spend an hour reading a rule book. So that's kind of the, the different extremes I go to. I guess there needs to be a special mention, I guess, for the worst rule book, because our friend Liz, who recently was on the podcast a little while back, she mentioned, and I absolutely agree because I dealt with this, was uh, Trismegistus. Oh, yeah. <laughs> which seemed to have gone out of its way to be complicated. I never read a rule book and got to the game table and I was like, I don't know. And we we played the game and somehow figured it out and then went back and looked at the rule book and we're like, this is a lot easier than you made it. Why are you harder than the game? <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's more difficult to beat the rule book than it is the actual game. So, yes dishonorable mention so to speak as far as that's concerned so i i think that over time you know rule books are our friends and we appreciate everyone out there that's writing them well and especially editing them and putting all the graphic design together uh everything out there so yes uh thank you for all and the other ones i wave my hand at you <laughs> <laughs> in your general direction so uh, that's it for our listeners. Anthony, let's get on to the games that we want to get to the table. That is, if their rule books are decent, let's talk about our acquisition disorders. All right. Yeah, so you mentioned Lisboa. I'm going to talk about, I guess, a quasi-sequel to Lisboa, Mercado uh -huh. de Lisboa. So this is a, they call it a thinky filler. And Lacerda is listed as a designer on this game, but I think it comes largely from Julian Pombo who did the solo mode for Lisboa as well as CO2 and was a play tester on Lisboa, CO2, Escape Plan, and On Mars. So he's been working with Lacerda for several different years on, on pretty much any game he's released in the last five, six years. And this game is a 30-minute game um, that takes the one mechanic from Lisboa, uh, the city building, the tile placement over when you're clearing the rubble and building your cities on the different... Um, the streets and it creates a whole game out of that. So it is, you essentially are placing tiles, building out your own stalls on the markets and special types of stores that you build next to them to improve the profitability of those tiles and trying to maximize the value of what you generate in this tiny little space in Lisboa. This was like one of like 12 mechanics. It was very important. This was one of the primary ways to score points during the game, but it was just one thing you did. <laughs> so in Mercado de Lisboa, it is the only thing you do. And it's not like 16th century, you know, Portugal after a, a terrible series of natural disasters. It's more modern. And the artwork reflects that. It is coming from Eagle Griffin Games. I don't know if they're going to kickstart this or not. I didn't see anything about that. They're uh, going to kickstart it. They are. Okay. Well, yes. it is Eagle Griffin. That's what they do. So hopefully it's price matches the weight of the game which looks like it's like low twos mid twos you know it's a 30 minute game it's a filler but it's got lacerda on the title it's pulling from lisboa mechanics so i am very much on board now did you see this yourself or did i send this to you i saw this independently i knew i knew okay. you probably saw it too though <laughs> so. i sent it to you as well because it was one of those things where we're huge lisboa fans and anything with Vitalis Serta, obviously anything with Lisboa, it was something that 
I think it's going to be an instant back for me. As you mentioned, what's going to be the cost of kickstarting this game is going to be a different story, of course. But I think this is definitely going to be a game that makes a solid kind of impact because, again, it's following a great pedigree, so to speak, but also because I think it's just the right amount of weight for this kind of game. All right, so a game that I want to talk about that Anthony sent over my way is Praga Caput Regine, which I'm unfortunately probably butchering, but it means, I'm sorry, Prague, Head of the Kingdom. Now, this is a game from one of my favorite designers, Vladimir Suchi. And basically, what we're looking at here is a game that's uh, Charles IV has been crowned King of Bohemia and ruler of the Holy Roman Empire from his castle in Prague. He oversees the construction of new fortifications, a bridge over the river, a university, a cathedral, and castles. So basically what you're doing here is you're doing construction. So it's a lot of city building game, medieval based, obviously. And there's a a pretty decent puzzle mechanic here. So throughout the game, you are trying to influence certain areas. And what's really interesting about the game, it's still in prototype format. But if you look at the board itself, it has a lot of 3D elements to it. These cardboard features of the different constructions that you're going to be putting into play. And basically, as the game goes on, you will be building up these different areas. You'll be taking the income from having, you know, added into here, so to speak. And players are going to choose different actions from the board to be able to build. And there's going to be a ray of course that you'll have to pay. But by using those actions, you can increase resources. It's your standard, your kind of game. And basically build up the new Prague City. And all of its other wonders and construction. So basically, Euro mechanics, synergy, and construction. And hopefully, you know, if you score the most victory points, you impress King Charles, which in the end is the only thing that really matters. Yeah, I'd, I'd like as soon as I saw this, I was like, this seems interesting. And then I saw the designer on it and I was like, ooh, send to Chris. This is. <laughs> It's got a very Orleans look about it with Mm -hmm. the tile placement on the board and there's resources on the board. And then it's got that Agra. If you remember that game that had that big kind of Mm. stacking construct that never really worked and and basically uh, would topple over when you would play it. But here you're looking at those two big buildings. You're looking at a cathedral. You're looking at a castle. You got a wheel, some, some, some sort of like building wheel, maybe along the lines of Zulkin, and then you have the bridge. So if they're able to pull this together, it looks like a lot of fun. I don't know what the final design is going to be, because anytime you have to put these 3D elements together, it comes a little iffy, but who knows? I mean, Everdale's out there with its giant trees, so maybe this adds to the uh, ongoing tradition of building up in board games, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, Suchi is a, he's a funny designer in that he does have some games that carry over mechanics like last will. And then the prodigals club is a sequel to last will, but almost all of his games are very different from each other. And this one really doesn't seem to fit the mold of any of the other seven or so he's released. Yeah. And that's exciting to me. It's kind of like getting a new, you know, uh, game where you're like, it's going to be something crazy and different because he doesn't want to redo something he's already done. Right. So, yeah, I love his work. I mean, it's like you said, it's very innovative and this is it's it's exciting to see his stuff out there. And again, sometimes it's like you said, it's not the same thing, but he the ideas are so innovative. Like even just like you mentioned last will, the idea of like 
taking your standard Euro game and like, I'm building an engine, I'm producing victory points. And like, great, now break that engine down. And whoever breaks that engine down the fastest wins. <laughs> so it's like, huh, that's a thing. And yeah, it's a thing. Uh, so hopefully Vladimir Stucci has done it again. I mean, I've loved every game that he's put out. So I'm really looking forward to this. All right, Anthony. So that's everything that we want to get to the table. Let's talk about the games that did hit the table. And we'll let everyone know if those games are a buy and they should run out and pick those games up. If those games are a play and they should sit down and play them. If those games are a dodge and they should avoid them at all costs. Or by chance, if those games are burned, like all those rotten rule books out there, and you should avoid them at all costs. So, Anthony, what do you have for us this week? This is a game I backed on Kickstarter like a year and a half ago at this point. And my copy came in last summer, so it's been sitting on the shelf for a while. It is Snowdonia. And the reason I back this is that it's been on the solo lists for a long time. This is like one of those, oh, this is a great solo game. It's a multiplayer game as well, but it plays, it has a solo version that you can play. And they did a deluxe master set, which includes the base game, as well as all the promo cards that have ever been released. I think there's like, I don't know, 100 or so of them plus five diff- different scenarios. So like the game that you get, the box is like on par with the Tricarion Collector's Edition, almost on par with the Suburbia Collector's Edition. It's a huge mm. box. Wow. And it has, I think, 1,200 cards in it or something like that. The base game maybe has 150 cards. So you can, there's a lot of extra stuff added in. And so this review is obviously not all of Snowdonia Deluxe Masters set because... I didn't play all that, but I did finally have a chance to play Snowdonia and to get a chance to to look through this collection and see what all I have and what it adds to the game. The game itself is fairly simple. You have a track around the outside of the board, which consists of various, you know, bits of rubble that you have to clear out and then like essentially towns or, you know, stopping stations where you're going to build various things. And you have two workers you can get a third one with various train powers that you'll pick up throughout the game. On your turn, you're going to place one of your workers on one of the, I think, eight different action spots that are in the game. And these include things like clearing rubble, pulling different resources, converting those resources into goods. So you can take the rubble and turn it into stones, or you can take the uh, iron that you've picked up and turn it into rails, links. You can build things on the different towns you've reached. You can build rails along the different cards that you've already cleared the rubble off of. Um, You can pick up special cards that give you different abilities and end game scoring conditions. And you can move your prospector along the track and the further they get, the more points they're worth at the end of the game. So your turns are very quick because you only have those two people. You put them all out together. um, Everybody takes turns and then you complete each of the actions in turn order. So for example, if you wanted to dig rubble, and you're playing a four-player game, there's three spaces to dig rubble. If you wait and don't do that on your first turn, and you get all the way around and someone else, everybody else digs rubble, you cannot dig rubble this turn. So it's a worker placement game. But those things will trigger in order. So it's kind of like dominant species in that way, where like an action you take early might impact an action taken later. So you have to kind of think through when you want to take it, where you want to place it. You don't have to place your worker in the first available slot. You could place it in the third available slot. You know, if you're like, ooh, if someone goes first and second and I go third, then I'm going to get this and this bonus, right? Because the order matters. 
So it's it's very much about positioning and the order of things. There's a weather mechanic that like influences how much you can dig when you dig and how many tracks you can lay when you lay tracks. So you have to kind of time that as well. But that's about it. Like mechanically, the game is fairly straightforward. The weight is in the twos. I feel like the base game itself is maybe even low twos. It's very straightforward and simple. The complexity comes in trying to think what other people are going to do, how they're going to do it, and coordinate your actions around that. I've gotten a chance to play this more uh, than I would have, obviously, in quarantine uh, because of Yukata. If you haven't checked out Yukata, they have a bunch of really good Euro games. This is one of them that they added somewhat recently, I think. So I've played a few games on there. Um, I've also played the master set that I own solo at my table and gotten a chance to like play with the very nice meeples and the fancy upgrades. The one thing I will say uh, before I get to like my review of the gameplay is the master set has a bunch, a bunch of misprints. So when I got it in, there was a a file up on the forums listing out all the different misprints. I printed them all off. I've yet to cut them all out because there's like, I don't know, 50 or 60 of them. And yeah, it's really bad. And like a lot of them are very minor, but it's a lot of misprints considering the Kickstarter, you had months to go through and proofread all these cards. So it's a little frustrating. I have had to cut a few cards out and put them in the sleeves. I don't know what to say. You know, I, I don't know if they've gone to the trouble of offering replacement cards for that yet. I haven't really checked because I know when I first got it, I, they had not. And I was just like, oh, whatever, I'll just print these. But something to keep your eyes on. If like if you do order a copy off eBay or something. I don't know, make sure it's been upgraded or just check and see what the impact is. I think most of the problems are in like the promo cards down the line. Like the base game wasn't so bad, but it's it's still kind of frustrating with as expensive as it was. The game itself, though, is great. I love this game. <laughs> it's really fun. Um, it's very, very quick because you just go, you place a worker, you place a worker, and then you just trigger the whole line, right? And you can purchase trains throughout the game that like, give you like special asymmetrical powers, like okay, now you can spend less to dig or you get more when you do this or you do this. But all all the trains also give you the power that you can spend a coal to get a third worker. And that's universal. Any train you have will do that. Plus the power it gives you. So you want to get a train as soon as possible because then you get a third worker. But then you're spending actions to get more coal because you want coal to be able to get that third worker. And then when do you dump that coal so you can just like use your... It's just a cool idea. I really, really like it. So... Snowdonia, fantastic game. I give that a buy. Uh, Deluxe Master Set, just make sure you know what you're buying because that's Kickstarter only and it's very expensive. It's like $150 or something on Amazon. So I don't know about that. Uh, The original is out of print as well. So (laughs) I don't know how useful this review is for buying a physical copy. But if it sounds interesting, hit up Yukata. It's a great game to play on there as well. So that is Snowdonia Deluxe Master Set. I remember this on Kickstarter. I was intrigued. I had several other people try to kind of push me into purchasing this. And it just did not look like a modern board game. It just didn't seem updated enough. And again, there are other games that do similar things. And again, it seemed like not in a bad way, but it seemed like it had so much stuff to it and the Kickstarter was bringing everything and it just didn't seem to be overall manageable at the table. So 
I'm glad there's a way to actually get this to the table or to the, the screen because, again, it seemed like it had a lot of promise. It just seemed like from the Kickstarter itself, it seemed like there were a lot of problems. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't the worst Kickstarter, definitely by any means. It's a little overwrought. There's definitely a lot of stuff in the box. It was pretty expensive considering the weight of the game you get. But if you really liked Snowdonia, this is probably like amazing, right? I'd never played it before. So That's like, great. I, I will say, though, if you like the idea of the mechanic or if you played it on Yukata and you're like, oh, that sounds cool. Alubari, a nice cup of tea. Yes, that's what I was going to say. Okay, yeah. Yep. It, this one came out at Essen last year. This re-implements Stodonia, same designer. Um, and this is actually in print. You can get it on Amazon for like 60 bucks. So it is not identical, but it uses a lot of the similar mechanics and it is updated a little more modern. So if you're looking, and, and you know, the theme's a little different too. You're not clearing out railways to build more railways you're you know growing tea and moving it along you know these different tracks so yeah that's something to keep in mind as well yeah that was the one i had seen at pax unplugged and it was getting constant attention so that's probably be the way i go because again this seems like a lot of great games to get to the table and maybe that's just personally for me the way that i actually want to get to the table All right, well, I'm going to talk about a much lighter game, a family party game. It's called Tattoo Stories. This is a a game designed by Eric Slauson. And basically what you're doing is, in theory, you are creating tattoo designs to be able to market to different customers. And hopefully your designs come out best. And again, like a lot of these other party games, especially in this version, you're going to be drawing your design. Whoever is going to be the client, the tattoo client here, will choose what design it likes best, and that will score the point. So basically, you've heard and seen these mechanics before. What Tattoo Stories does is a little bit different, is the tattoo client is going to pick out 10 cards, go through the 10 cards, and then pick out a final five, and those five cards will be different objects or ideas that you will have to incorporate in your different tattoo designs. So it could be things like a monster truck, a video game reference, an alien, a ghost, a bikini. There you go. You got your five ideas, work and create a design. Again, a little bit of a change here is as you're putting together your design for your client here, you get to have a conversation. Everyone gets to have a conversation and ask them what would they like most, what things should be featured most, how would they like that design put together. And a final tweak to the standard kind of draw something and get people to vote on it is usually when you do these drawing games, you can erase. But since it's going to be a tattoo, you're not allowed to erase. (laughs) So as you're putting together this wacky design you are very, very much stuck with the tattoo you are giving. So mistakes are now part of the design. So do your best to kind of incorporate that. Otherwise, you're going to have a little bit of an awkward design. So again, Tattoo Stories does something a little different, a couple little things minorly different that overall makes it into a, you know, decent family party game. I'm going to give it a light play. Obviously, this is best for you know family and small groups and maybe a party type of situation but you're going to have the most fun putting together wacky designs and obviously screwing up again and again so 
not serious gameplay, more of a game game experience, but uh, nonetheless, fun to get to the table. Sounds cute. I mean, I don't have the group for it, but it, it sounds fun. I like the idea. It's very thematic where it's everything's permanent. That's kind of cool. Yeah, that's what I, I, I took away from it as far as the biggest kick is concerned. I mean, otherwise, it's your standard game. But the idea that you're actually having that conversation with clients as you're putting the tattoo together and obviously as you're trying to get it done and you're making mistakes, now they have to live with it. The production's very good. Again, it's just a box of small cards. You're having these giant chunky player boards that you're going to be able to draw your design on and a typical eraser marker. So overall, fine if you have the group for it. Uh, Tattoo stories. All right, so that's everything that's hitting our table. Let's get on to our feature review. All right, we are back with our friends' favorite games, one of our favorite features where we bring on friends from throughout the industry to talk about their favorite games, what they're playing, their backgrounds, what's coming out in the future. Um, This week, we have special guest on the podcast, Tony Gulati from CGE Games. Uh, Tony, we know you from all the conventions we've met way (laughs) back when. So thanks for coming on. We really appreciate it. No, thank you so much for having me. Awesome. So like I said, this this feature is kind of, it's a chance for people to get to know some of the people that they frequently see at conventions or games that they play or companies that they interact with um, from a little bit different angle, right? It's not just what's coming out soon, you know, what, what are you excited about that's on the horizon, but what are you excited about that you've from the past. So usually bring people in a little bit blind. Like we don't typically know what their favorite games are ahead of time, maybe a little bit ahead of time, but not like it's not like thoroughly researched. So this is always fun for us as well. So I'm going to throw it to you and let you introduce um, yourself and and your favorite game and you know what you want to talk about today. Great. Yeah. So like Anthony said, my name's Tony Galati. I'm uh, North America marketing for Czech games edition. I've been with them since uh, right around Essen last year. And uh, so actually my favorite game is one that kind of got me into this industry. And it's one that I designed and it's called Yashima. And it was published by Greenbrier Games just a a few years back. It's a miniatures combat game. I, I actually started designing it because we... Me and uh, Joshua Sprung and a couple of my other buddies from uh, from college years were all competitively playing the Dungeons & Dragons miniatures game. And it actually was during the time period of 4th edition coming out. And when 4th edition was launched, they actually discontinued the Dungeons & Dragons miniatures game. And all prize support and everything. And... We had actually been spending the past few years uh, doing the competitive circuit for that game. And all of a sudden it was kind of like, this is no longer available anymore. So we kind of had to figure out a new thing to do. And a bit naively, Joshua Sprung and I decided to make a game. And uh, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) so... It's, it's a funny way to respond to you're like, ah, oh, you took away my favorite thing. I'll just make yeah. a new one. That's fine. Yeah. And that was kind of how we, we looked at it. It was, uh, we don't have this available anymore. So oh, we can do that. We can do it just as good or better. Like, I mean, it's kind of that pipe dream type setting where you don't really know what you're doing, but at the same time, you're like, why not? Let's do it. We, yeah, we can, this can't be that yeah. hard. <laughs> Natural next question, of course. How hard was it? <laughs> 
Uh, actually, it, it took about two years, and uh, we started off trying to kickstart it ourselves unsuccessfully, and then we decided to, because we had no idea how to really build an audience out of nothing in the game industry, so we were like, let's let's start talking to publishers. That actually went much better, because we ended up going to Protospiel events and um, and. S- I think it was honestly only Prospiel at that time. So we went to a number of those events and we pitched the game to some different publishers. And that was when we started to get to know people as well as uh, have our game actually in front of people who had a little bit better understanding of how modern game mechanics work. And we're, we were given a lot of good advice at those shows. And then we actually had it, uh, we, we pitched the game successfully to Greenbrier Games. Um, at that time, we then took about a year where we worked with their team, uh, making changes through the development process. And during that time, I also started working part-time in the sales and marketing type role for their company. And that kind of got me the foot in the door of the game industry. And because... About six to eight months after that, after the Kickstarter for Yashima and everything, um, I was I was approached by Arcane Wonders, and well, I believe we actually the last time we met, I was working still for Arcane Wonders. I was with them for about four and a half years after that. So altogether, I've been in the industry for a little over five years now, and uh, and most recently with uh, Czech Games Edition. That's great. Yeah. That's it like a, f- a fun kind of origin story um you know like we really like this game let's make a new one and now i'm just you're just entrenched in the industry <laughs> as much as anybody can yeah I, uh, I mean it was just one of those things where you're like you naively go in thinking i'm gonna do this for xyz result and it came out completely different yeah <laughs> that's fantastic so i guess back to the game a little bit if we can even go back to like the dungeons and dragons yeah. game and what about that you know, what captured your attention so much that got you guys into playing it competitively? And then what about it was that made you want to make something else instead of, you know, going and finding another game maybe that was shared some similar features that already existed? Because there's a lot of games out there with competitive scenes, but what was it about this one? And in turn, your game, Yashima, um, that really captures your, uh, yeah, your attention. So, so basically it was starting off with the Dungeons & Dragons miniatures. It was their skirmish style play. Um, so you were actually building the smaller war bands and facing off in about an hour long match. And so the thing that really drew me in was the brevity of the, the time length of the, of the each match. So you'd go through and you'd, you could play a whole tournament over the course of like a day, but each round was only going to be a, a couple hours. Um, so you're never going to be sitting there for like uh, a four or five hour bout like you would in some of the bigger war games. And that was really what drew me to it. And then I, I, I've always been a fan of the Dungeons and Dragons system. Um, so it's a D20 system. It was something familiar to me. Armor classes and rolling against it. It was an initiative and basically it was all all things that were all familiar to me, I'd have to really relearn any system. And then once it was gone, 
I went to like, I tried playing Malfo. I tried playing, um, we, we played Descent and we played a number of like the dungeon delving type board games, but we didn't really find anything that gave us the, the feel of like a skirmish game in a board game at the time. So that was where we were like, well, we know all about this. We can make it. And uh, Yashima kind of, like, I, I say it's my favorite game because, like, even though now I can look back and see some of the flaws within the system, it's one of those things where it really did what I wanted it to do. You are one character and one character only in a skirmish game. So it's unique in that you are, instead of being a war band or anything like that, you are just one master and your master is combating against other masters. Um, and I think during, during the time that it came out, it was the first one to really try to take that on. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that, that makes a lot of sense. And it's kind of cool. Like you kind of have like a, like a natural flow into something that again, you would want to play. Um, are there any other influences or any other games that you kind of drew from or that you looked at and said, oh, I kind of like this and I'd, I'd like to make sure that's in my game? Or So Josh Sprung, he's he, he co-designed the game with me and he, he had a Magic the Gathering background. So a lot of the card play um, in Yashima has different influences from uh, collective card games. So the big thing with Yashima is it has almost a little smash up of feel type because you're selecting your character and then you're selecting a Kami, a Kami spirit that you're endued by. So you have like the tiger and the tortoise and the dragon and all of these different spirits that have a different deck of cards. And you're taking that deck of cards and you're combining it with the character's deck of cards. So if you were the master Osamu and a tortoise, you'd combine those cards and that would give you all of your uh, combat cards. But also your deck is your life. So as you take damage, you actually are milling cards out of your deck. So when you defend against things and use cards, they actually go down onto the bottom of your deck. So you, you're never discarding cards unless you're doing so for to pay for an ability that actually loses life for you. So you're constantly stacking your deck as you're playing the game as well, which really tends to go in with the whole Magic the Gathering type. You, you start, as you take damage and as you're doing things, you start setting up combos in your deck of cards that you know are coming up based on what you've already played and put into your deck. And that's where like the strategy of the game comes in is not only where your board placement is and where you are in the game in relationship to the other master, but it's also what combos you've been setting up throughout the game, what cards you know are coming up and like almost deck builder stylish where as you get lower in life, you become more deadly because you're going to be flipping over these cards that you've set up that are typically your more powerful cards all within a short period of time. Um, yeah, the game has a couple other features with like uh, as special abilities in a tome that you actually are turning the pages and you can play the abilities using uh, different resources. And it had... Uh, we, we, I think we tried a little bit too much and that was the the thing that made it so different because 
The game itself is still, I, I haven't really seen anything that quite tried to do all the stuff it did. Um, and I think that's probably one of the strengths and weaknesses the game had. And it, in that it, uh, in that it had like an action pool for the different a- attack and move actions. It had this special deck that had your special abilities for each character. And then it also had the whole mechanic where you're, you're fusing the attack deck with your life. And so there were a lot of concepts that were new that people weren't necessarily familiar with coming into the game. Gotcha. Yeah. No. And I, yeah. So, so, so a lot of things like you'd be used to like drawing cards and discarding cards after you use them. That's pretty standard with most games. When you use a card, it goes into a discard pile. That's not the case with this game. The guard goes on the bottom of your deck. And just that alone threw people. Yeah. <laughs> I can imagine. I mean, there's, there's certain shorthand. Yeah. Yeah. So combine that with like five or six other things that are completely new to people that they have to wrap their head around. And it, and that's where I, I sit there and I go, I think it maybe tried too much for what it was coming right out the gate. So, but yeah, it's, it's still something I, I love and I'll, I'll play it. If someone, there are some people that even at shows now they'll, they'll bring their, their, their copies of the game and, and we'll play. That, that's awesome. It's, yeah, yeah it's yeah. always fun. And that's really yeah. cool. I'm, it's always exciting to like, kind of hear, you know, why somebody made a game, you know, maybe it's just an idea that's stuck in your head, but it's always my favorite thing is when somebody says, it's just cause I wanted to play it. You know, you know, it's, it's just something that you wanted to exist. Yeah. And that's really where it came in. Yeah, we, we did. We wanted the game that we wanted to play and we had a really good time. I mean, we had uh, two different tournaments that we ran with uh, Greenbrier games on the year, uh, on the year it released. And then on the year afterwards um, at Gen Con. And it, it was really one of those experiences that really taught me a lot about uh my strengths and weaknesses in the industry so i I learned that i was much better tuned in to be in the sales and marketing side than the uh the design end of 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 different games yeah that's fantastic all right so i mean speaking of the sales and marketing side um you mentioned you know you currently work with cge and uh, you know obviously situations being what they are right now it's not the typical you know ramping up to convention season that we're used to but i'm i'm sure you guys have some stuff on the horizon that you'd want to talk about right yeah absolutely so the big thing that we wanted to bring up is it's actually going to be coming out here in the next week is codenamesgame.com so if you go, it's actually our Codenames online platform that's coming out. And if you go to codenamesgame.com, it's right now, I believe it's still just a, yeah, it's still just a landing page with a subscribe to a newsletter. However, within the next few days, we're going to be launching the platform. Uh, and what this is actually going to be is it's going to be an official platform where you can use broadcasting devices are broadcasting platforms like Skype, Zoom, um, Google Hangouts to play code names using this online web platform with your friends around the world. 
That's something that we've found that absolutely there's a demand for and that people need to play games now. So we've jumped in and this is going to be a free platform that we're providing very soon. But in addition to that, we also have some new launches. One uh, Sanctum that just launched uh, earlier in the year. We kind of had a big push right around the Gamma uh, season. It was uh, SN pre-release, so it it came overseas. And then we kind of ran into this, this pandemic. So basically we're now continuing to talk about sanctum but also we're gearing towards uh our next release which isn't officially announced but we have leaked a little bit on our website um about how we are going to be talking about a game called under falling skies under falling skies right now you can play a nine card print and play version that is available on our website and our website is checkgames.com. So you can download the free print and play and try the game out. This is a, the print and play actually came out, I believe a couple years ago. Yeah. I feel like there was like a print and play contest, right? And it was, yeah, that yeah, there was a big print and play contest on BGG and it instead of just winning the solo, yeah, so it won the best solitaire, most thematic, most innovative and best overall on the BGG's nine card game print and play design contest. So basically the designer Ulick uh actually started working for Check Games Edition and he brought us the um the game and there's more story on our blog. Uh, we have a blog post on the website that actually talks kind of on the, the back end on how it, how it came to be. But we played the game. We ended up loving it. And we've been working with him to develop it into something more than just a nine-card solo game. It's still going to have a solo focus. But we are also saying that the game works really well collaboratively because of the difficulty level as you get into some of the campaign style things that are coming in with it. You might not be able to beat it (laughs) by yourself. That's great. It's always cool when you see something that like kind of comes up through the the indie scene and um, gets a a formal, more full release down the line. So that's, it's actually one I've been excited for. So I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. And what we recommend right now is uh, definitely check out the solo print and play, but we are we're working on some announcements and we'll be definitely have more information to show awesome. pretty soon. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Tony, for coming on. Uh, I mean, like I said, it's always fun talking to you, uh, but especially getting a chance to kind of sit down and go through kind of the, the genesis of your game, Yashima, and then kind of what you guys are working on right now. So that's always fun, uh, but we really appreciate it. No, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. All right. So that's everything for this week. Until next time, this is Chris. Hey, and this is Anthony. And we'll save you a seat at the table.